Some time ago in the program, we had Lieutenant Commander Ted Robinson tell his very exciting story about the rescue of John F. Kennedy in World War II. That interview was well received. We got a lot of fan mail talking about how much they enjoyed hearing Ted tell that fascinating story. But he's got many more, as illustrated in his book, Water in My Veins, The Pauper Who Helped Save a President. One in particular is being looked at to possibly be made into a motion picture. It's a very riveting tale. We want uh, to return to have Ted tell it. I'd like to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Lieutenant Commander Ted Robinson. Well, thank you. I'm very flattered that somebody's interested in something that uh, just involved me and didn't involve the President of the United States. Up to now, I find my entire popularity (laughs) is due, of course, to my association with Jack Kennedy. But this is uh, a Ted Robinson story, and uh, it's true. And it's an event that took place that uh, was uh, probably where I put my ship in real danger. That ship was saved by the least expected, lowest-ranked uh, man on my ship. It's a, it's a wonderful tale because it just shows you uh, you never know who you can count on when you really the chips are down. Well, let's remind our listeners, uh, your previous tale involved working with PT boats, but uh, after that incident with uh, rescuing the future president of the United States, you were then put in command of an LST, a much larger vessel tra- that was job was to transport materiel and troops. Yes. Uh, the reason that happened is I could have stayed into PTs, but the, the five of us that survived that terrible 13 months in combat around Guadalcanal and PT boats, all five of us put in for Navy Air because we found Navy Air made pay and a half, and they only were up at the front maybe a month at a time, and then they'd go back and dance with the girls in Australia. So I put in for Navy Air, and all five of us did, and I was the only one to pass the physical. I had orders to uh, Dallas, Texas for pre- pre-flight, and they cha- took everybody in the status of transfer and put them in amphibs because little did we know because it was a secret but a month later Omaha Beach happened and they expected huge amphibious losses and so they put me in amphibs and uh, I became captain of the biggest ship in amphibs which is a landing ship tank that's what LST stands for we who dro- we who drove them actually called them LST's large slow targets. <laughs> but and how lo- they're talking like over a football field. Yes, they're 385 feet long. They were huge. We carried a crew instead of on PT boats where there were two officers and ten men. I went to 13 officers and uh, 113 men, and we carried hundreds of army and marine troops and tanks and trucks and jeeps and and went right up on the beach Uh, and they really uh, had a great deal to do in winning the pacific war because the pacific war was island after island after island landing after there were hundreds of omaha beaches in the south pacific including okinawa which was probably the biggest landing we ever had bigger than omaha beach i think we, uh, we spoke previously with Dr. John Linner. He'd been a physician on one of the LSTs. And I remember one of the things he said was that they, by the nature of having to land on a beach, they were at a very shallow draft, which meant they had some very difficult handling characteristics sometimes on the open sea. Yeah, well, what we actually did uh, is we uh, tried to go in at uh, low tide, and we filled our voids with water. 
and and uh, we went in and we dropped a huge anchor that weighed I don't know how many tons off our stern to pull us off. And we would go in, and the idea was that you loaded up, but meanwhile the tide had come in, and then you'd you'd empty your voids of water, and then you'd pull in on the big anchor, and it'd pull you off. And and it usually worked. Well, Okinawa is, of course, one of the most uh, pitched, famous battles of the Pacific Theater in World War II, and, and the story you're talking about was very much part of getting in there and trying to, to move men around. Yes. When I first got to Okinawa, I was really used as a hospital ship because I was a vice commander of a flotilla, so I had a doctor and a pharmacist made aboard. And I would bring new troops from Saipan up to Okinawa, unload them, and maybe two weeks later, they would take these same guys terribly wounded and say all our uh, our uh, uh, medical facilities on Okinawa are filled, all our mesh units, all our hospital ships have left. Please take these guys. Help us, help us. Bring these wounded down to Saipan. And we were playing doctor, giving them morphine shots and so on. So that's what we were mainly doing. Okinawa was getting closer and closer to the Japanese mainland, and that was uh, that was quite quite a pitched battle. Yes, it was uh, the largest battle that ever occurred, I think, in the, uh, in the war. I think it was bigger than the Battle of uh, Bulge. I do know that our brave Marines and army on the beach in three months killed two, 140 thousand Japanese troops, plus, sadly, 100,000 Okinawan women and children that the Japanese used as human shields. 240,000 people in three months. And when you come to think that the Vietnam War, we were there eight years and we lost 50,000 men. That gives you an idea. And the Navy lost between 35,000 and 55,000 seamen at sea at Okinawa. Wow. Well, I guess in this particular tale, you your mission was to go into a really narrow inlet with this large vessel to try and uh, evacuate some men out of there. Yes, what had happened at Okinawa, anyone that knows the Battle of Okinawa on the land can tell you that Shuri Castle was the big holdout. It was kind of the casino at Italy, like the casino at Italy. And we sent thousands of Marines and Army troops up and it was a great big cement structure and uh, they lost 7,000 I know in one day and it was just awful and so apparently I'm not familiar with army uh, uh, outfits but apparently the army had decided to send a, 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 a foraging unit kind of behind Shuri Castle put it in a little inlet behind them and go in and see if there was some way they could come in behind uh, uh, that way. And they had gotten in trouble. They had been discovered. They only had about maybe uh, 15 trucks and a 100 men, small unit. And uh, I hadn't put them ashore. But uh, the next day, they were discovered, and I was ordered to go back in there and and pull them out. Well, unfortunately, what happened... uh, the morning I was to pull them out, I first looked at the charts and I could see the narrow uh, outlet I had to go into to pick them up. And it was the only place you could pick them up because they were coming down a long road with trees and on both sides. 
and so I asked for cover because I understood they were under fire, which they were. The Japanese were chasing them. They had mortars, and it was under, under fire. And they said, I said, can you send a destroyer with me? And they said, in effect, we're not going to send a destroyer in there. That's too dangerous. Uh, we got a lot of that in amphibs. We were the ones that always went up on the beach. But anyway, so then that morning, we got a typhoon warning that a typhoon was coming in. I said, my God, I can't bring my ship in a narrow inlet like that in a typhoon. And they said, you'll have to. These guys are all going to die. You've got to get them out there now. Or they... So I started in. Well, by the time I went in that inlet, the, the wind was blowing and the rain and the visibility is almost zero and the palm trees are snapping off at the top. And I went in that inlet and I thought, my God, what am I going to do? And I saw this army unit, and it had rained enough already, and just poured rain, that all their trucks were sunk to their, up to their hubs or above in mud and crud. And no way one truck could get past another, and they were all stuck in there for good. And the men were desperately trying to push them, the army guys. And meanwhile, the mortars were coming in. Oh, it was a dreadful scene. So I thought, I can't go in there and... and take out my whole ship, and then I had an idea. I'll pull in there very briefly, because I knew once I pulled in, uh, LST has a big high bow, and that high bow, once you pull off the beach, is blown by a typhoon, which was coming right down from the entrance of that retreat, uh, right towards pushing me towards the rocks at the end of the up here, and I knew that wind would catch me and throw me around. So I thought, I have to get in there real quick, get them loaded and get out. So what I'll do, I'll tell them to leave the trucks. And that's what I decided to do. And so we went in, and uh, I drop, when you go in, you drop this huge anchor from your stern that weighs tons. And you go in, and you fill your voids with water, and you try to go in at high tide. And just luckily, it was high tide. And so I went, and that, that means that when we went out and we took on a load, the tide would have gone in. That would be some help in getting off the beach. And secondly, you would empty your water voids, and then you'd pull in on, on that huge anchor. So I decided I'd go in, get them in there, and if I could get them on real fast, back off real fast, uh, I could maybe make it without that wind blowing my bow around and blowing me right up onto the rocks. And we would lose the ship. We would lose all our crew. We would lose all the men. Because what would happen, I well imagine, would be that my ship would be tipped over with the wind on the rocks, and that would make my guns impossible to fire. Right. And the Japanese, who were following the army already, would just bring in artillery, mortars, and just shell us to death, and we'd be helpless. So it was a hell of a decision, so I thought, well, i got to save those guys. So we went in, and I immediately when I came in and opened my bow doors, the army guys all abandoned the vehicles, and they all started to run onto the ship, get the hell out of there, because the mortars were dropping right. and the trees were snapping off. The army head of the army was a West Pointer. He was from a, a major. He was about 28, and I was 26 at the time. Little baby face, looked like 12. He came up to me, and I said, Major, 
get your men all off, off, off those trucks and bring them in and we'll back off right away. It's my only hope to get out of here. Right. He said, Captain, come with me. I said, what do you mean? He said, come with me. And he led me down through the mud along the line of trucks. And he led me to the last truck. And he opened the flap of that last truck and it was totally filled with wounded. There was an enlisted army man lying on his back. His whole stomach was open. You could see his intestines. I mean, it was just horrible. And he said, see the other two trucks before? All three of us are full of wounded. They're our rear end guard. And already I knew about the rear end guard because now there was nobody guarding us and these, these uh, mortars were coming in. We're speaking with Lieutenant Commander Ted Robinson about his experiences in World War II. We should point out, Ted, you did have, looking like a little, you have a model here of, of, of an LST. It looks, like, it looks like eight different guns to which to defend yourself. Yes. So that you put those to use? Well, what we did was we, we would fire, the minute the Japanese showed their heads at the end of the road, we would fire right over the trucks. And so they had to, they couldn't come forward because, and we had shot already almost all the trees around them as best we could down, and we were snapping off and so on. So we kept the Japanese temporarily back with those 40-millimeter guns, which are deadly. But anyway, I walked down the line, and I looked at these men, and I said, well, I said, put these men on stretches. We don't have time to get your truck on. You have to move every other truck. They can't, right. you can't pass the other trucks. And he said, Commander, this man lying before you has a broken back. If we lift him up to put him on a stretcher, he said, he's going to die right now. You want to see him die? He said, if we can drive this truck onto your ship and we can drive it off the ship at Okinawa, direct to a medical facility, so they can tend him in the truck. And he said, I got four other guys in the same situation. And I said, well, then you're going to have to leave him. And the doctor looked up and he said, Captain... I don't know about the United States Navy, but in medicine, we don't leave our wounded. And Major said, I guess I don't know much about the Navy either because I'm going to stay right here, and you're going to be responsible for the death of all of us. You've got to figure out something. And the kid looks up at me. This kid's stomach is open. He's conscious. I can't believe and he says, for God's sakes, don't leave me. And he starts to cry. Now, I had helped enough wounded. I had been doing nothing but help wounded the weeks ahead, ca carrying off, walking out. All the doctors had told us, when you're dealing with a man that's seriously injured, don't talk about bringing him back to a military base on Okinawa. He wants to go home. He just doesn't want to be patched up and sent back in line. Always mention home, because to home means a little crummy farmhouse in Iowa or something with his little sister or his wife or his mother, safety and cleanliness and decency. So I leaned over and I said to the kid, don't worry, kid, I'm going to get you home. And I thought, my God, I'm, I'm leading with my heart instead of my head. So I walked 
down to the line of trucks and the mud and crud and it's just raining like hell. And I turned to the major and I said, Major, you get every brown shirt, dog face army guy off my ship right now. You get 50 men on every truck, every truck, and you lift those things by hand because I'll give you a half an hour. If it takes more than half an hour, we're going to lose this whole damn ship. And then I called, got on the PA system, and I called all my men the special sea details. And all I left on the ship was the guys to lower the uh, LCVPs, the little small boats we have that go ashore, and the engineers and the gunners. Everybody also, and I'm real proud to say that uh, my gunner, my head uh, boatswain's mate Sparks, he came off there and he had big chains and we had wrenches and everything else. And right away, all our men went to work on the first truck. And so we said, we'll get that first truck off, and we'll show you how the hell to do it, because you've got to get the second truck out up where the first truck is. So we had winches, and we had cables, and we had chains, and we had everything. And all my seamen came out rushing out. I was so proud of them. And they came rushing out there. And meanwhile, my gunners are keeping the Japanese back. And so we did get all the Army guys off, and we put them on the second truck, on the third truck, and we kept moving them up to where we couldn't reach it by winches, and we started pulling them aboard. And then I had an idea, the only idea that would save the ship. When I had brought that LST, when I first was captain of the LST, I picked up a load in Bayonne, New Jersey, in the New York Harbor, and I took it over up the Hudson River, and I put in a pier in Manhattan to check in with a port authority for my orders to go to Norfolk from there. And the Hudson River had a tremendous current, and they used tugs, and they put one tug up on the forward end of the ship and the other tug on the other side on the after so we could twist the ship. My I, What I had to do is... When I backed off, when that ship got off the ground, it would immediately swing to the left towards the rocks, and the whole ship would start blowing towards it. But particularly the bow would swing around because the stern would still be hung on to the anchor, so the whole ship would pivot around that way. And so I decided I'd put my two little LCVPs, which are about 36 feet long, made of wood that, as you know, we used to send right up on the beach with with land, with men in, in uh, combat. Before the ship got in, we'd go in with those and start getting set up to sp- bring the big ship in. And so I put the uh, enlisted, I put the men that ran that little uh, boat into the uh, little LCVPs, and I lowered them. I could lower the one on the wind side away from the wind real easy, but the one on the windward side was banging against the ship as we lowered it. If anyone's ever tried to, 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 to dock a boat in a crosswind, they have at least some idea what you're talking about. It, it, it can be a very scary proposition on, on, in a small boat. And this is a typhoon. Now, the first thing I stop, got to stop right now and tell you a, a little bit about my crew on those small boats and around my entire ship. When I was in PT boots, boats, they were all volunteers. It was early in the war and only the elite could uh, ask to go in, and we got the elite. Hey, you could count on every guy in PT boats. We were all volunteers. But by the middle of the war, it was now way back 
you know, about the time of the Omaha Beach landings. By the middle of the war, the Navy were taking 37-year-old guys. They were taking guys with mini police records. They were taking anybody that could move. And so on my LST, when I put that LST, a brand-new ship in commission, of my 13 officers, only one had ever been to sea, and that was me on a little high-powered little wooden PT boat about the size of those little LCVPs. Now I was in command of this huge steel ship that weighed tons and tons and tons. And of my 113 enlisted men, only 13 of them had ever been to sea. And lucky, luckily they were the old chiefs, like Chief Sparks, who immediately jumped into this fray. Let's take a short break, after which we will resume our discussion with Ted Robinson about what happened on Okinawa. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 